1: Hello, everyone. I'm Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel, a podcast channel on NewBooks Books Network. Today, we are honored to have Dr. Mary Wesley on our channel. Dr. Wesley has worked um, in the Department of Ancient, Medieval, and Early Modern, Manuscripts at the British Library. She is a full-time uh, freelance writer, but she continues to teach courses on medieval language and literature as a part of the British Library's adult learning program. She is a contributor to several magazines, including the London Review Books and the Times Literary Supplement. And today she's here to talk to us about her most recent books called Hidden Hands, The Lives of Manuscripts and Their Makers. Mary, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Uh, It's customary to ask our guests uh, to talk a little about themselves, how they became interested in their uh, field of expertise, which in this case is medieval manuscript and medieval literature. And uh, maybe you could also tell us how the idea of this book uh, came about.
0: Yeah, well, I suppose my obsession with manuscripts began when I was at university doing my B.A., um, and I first, you know, was working on a, a particular manuscript of um, a collection of Middle English. So that's sort of later medieval English uh, plays. And um, I just realized that it, the manuscript text was just this incredibly rich artifact that had so many different layers of use and reuse. And it made me realize that by comparison with the modern, the modern edited text, the modern printed text was this kind of bland and bald and lifeless thing. And there was something so wonderful about the strange, varied, confusing diversity of the manuscript text. Um, and I was hooked. <laughs>
1: uh- you, you actually put your finger on a great point. Before reading your book, I was also plagued with the idea that the manuscript is just uh, you know a container of information, and that information was only the textual information that is written on the pages. But we'll uh, but this is this is an idea that I kind of disabused myself of after reading your book. But we'll get to that uh, a little bit further. Um, I, I kind of like to uh, to to hook our audience here. So maybe in just two or three minutes, you could briefly tell us the main idea of this book, and then we'll delve into some other questions.
0: Yeah, so the idea of the book is very simply that a manuscript is a kind of collection of human stories. When you're sitting in the silence of a special collections reading room and and turning the pages of a medieval manuscript, you're having these kind of tangible, smellable, visual encounters with the past. But more than that, you're having encounters with the people who made and subsequently used the object in front of you. The the really important point about manuscripts is that their creation was a fundamentally collaborative exercise. So many different people involved in the production of manuscripts. And then after they were created, they passed through many different hands again. And many of those hands kind of left their marks in the pages. And that's what's so, so interesting that you can encounter each of these layers of use and misuse uh, or use and reuse, But also I think uh, that the basic argument of the book is that this is actually really important because the kinds of people, particularly who made medieval manuscripts, were often anonymous figures, you know, anonymous scribes, anonymous artists. These were people of a lower social status or women. So they are not the kinds of people who we traditionally valorize in our conventional histories of the period. And therefore manuscripts offer us sometimes the only opportunity we have to encounter the lives of people whose lives are now long, long receded, but otherwise we might not know anything about them.
1: Um. And I guess again, another common misconception is that a manuscript is simply a book. But the manuscript is different from a codex. Uh, am I right? So, am I right about this?
0: Yeah, I suppose codex is just uh, the Latin word for a book, um, and a manuscript is, in its sim- simplest, is just it comes from a two Latin words manus and scribere, meaning hand and to write. So it's just a handwritten object. So it could be a map or or some documents. Um, and so I, you know, I have quite a kind of loose definition of, of the manuscript, but my predominant interest is in, you know, what you would call the codex, so books.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you, you said that the manuscript is like an archaeological artifact or an object which has a lot of secrets which can be uncovered. So, and um, it's quite different from a printed modern text. So maybe you can tell us a little about this point. So how is that a, manu- is a manuscript? How can a manuscript tell us more, reveal more secrets about the past, about the scribes, about, about the, the, the authors, maybe, rather than a printed text, a modern printed text?
0: Yeah, so I think this touches on a kind of a change in scholarly attitudes in the last, let's say, 20 years, um, which is that the kind of traditional idea of what an editor did was that they would go and take the manuscript and the manuscript text, and then they would, you know, carefully organize it and they would filter out, uh, you know, the work of the scribe, which was sort of considered a bit like white noise. You know, we got we got to get rid of this and we have to take the text back to this perfect, pure authorial version, exactly what the author wanted to write down. And, and that therefore the, you know, the editor is kind of like, you know, the, the author's holy representative on earth. (laughs) And now we're starting to, there's a bit of a shift going on and people are starting to say, but wait, isn't it actually really interesting what scribes do with the text in front of them, the mistakes that they make, I mean, perhaps those are in, those are completely unintentional. Um, they might just be little, you know, a, a word misplaced here and there. But that tells us something quite interesting about the w- how the scribe thought about the text in front of them and thought about the labor that they were carrying out. Or it might be something more um, perhaps ideological, you know, we have scribes who, who make changes to a text to, in the book, I talk about um, a particular manuscript of the work by the Anglo-Norman poet Marie de France, who, where the scribe has kind of reframed a story to make it sound a little bit more sexist um, and to kind of throw women into a more negative light. And so there's something I think very, very interesting about what scribes are doing. I mean, that's what my pretty much my whole doctoral thesis was about, was like how scribes are playing around with texts, sometimes in a conscious way and sometimes in an unconscious
1: way. Uh, I a, f- a few years ago, I saw this video on, I guess it was Science Magazine, where there were a group of scientists, biologists, historians, and also Middle Ages, historians of Middle Ages who were uh, doing a DNA scanning of a manuscript, and they found examples of monks' saliva. Uh, and based on even the parchment, they could tell about the flora and fauna of that area where the... Manuscript was created. They could tell the kind of food that monks ate, which was which was absolutely fascinating. Um, and I guess am I right that some some uh, historians, Middle Ages historians, also used like very simple technologies such as uh, UV ultraviolet light to read uh, maybe I don't know the kind of scribes that have been deleted or faded. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So what we call an erasure. So just when somebody has removed some text um, and UV is really, really helpful for helping us to see stuff that's been removed, Um, you know, either because it's faded or because it's been intentionally removed. So yeah, there are, it's a, it's a whole fascinating new area, the way in which science is helping us to, to build a richer picture of the, as you say, the kind of archeology span of the book.
1: Mm. And in your research, uh, Have you ever had this wow moment when you were going through manuscripts, something you discovered, something that really caught your attention, maybe in the pictures, in the illustrations, in any manuscripts that you could have missed in a modern print, maybe?
0: (laughs) Um, it's so hard to choose a single moment because in a sense, that is what my research is, um, is about the joy of the kind of unexpected encounters that manuscripts present you with. And I just feel every time you look at a manuscript, you see something new. Um, for example, well, just while I was doing my doctoral research, I remember looking at this particular poem that was about uh, the virgin mary and i was looking at this manuscript that was copied quite late um seemingly after the reformation um in england and the dissolution of the monasteries and the kind of um, for your listeners in case they don't know the whole scale religious change from you know a change to catholic practices to more towards the the kind of protestant practices and i just noticed that there were the scribe had gone through and made these modifications that took out some you know references to the virgin mary that would have been sort of a bit problematic in this new cultural environment that that he or she was living in and, you know, it's just moments like that. Of course, it's not something that's going to hugely change our understanding of history, but it's just these tiny little clues, like small changes of words that just give us a much richer sense of what literature meant to people at different times and in different places. And that's why scribes, scribal work to me is so interesting because it's an early version of kind of readers' responses, right? And we we don't have that much documentary evidence about what people thought about texts from the Middle Ages. So actually, the responses of scribes are really important for telling us what people thought and felt about about literature.
1: Uh, And the very act of uh, the production of a manuscript was quite a laborious task. I, again, before reading your book, I was under the illusion that the author wrote the book or the codex, which is which a is completely, completely wrong assumption. So can you tell us maybe about the process of creating a manuscript, especially an illuminated manuscript where there were a lot of pictures involved in there?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of helpful in a way to go back to the very beginning of the process. So manuscripts were either written on parchment, which is the prepared skin of a domestic animal, or towards the end of the, the Middle Ages on paper. Um, for parchment, you know it was an incredibly complex process to prepare parchment you know i i went i talk about this in the book i went to the the last place in england that's still making parchment in the traditional way and it is this kind of incredible alchemy to watch you know hairy lumpy animal skins transformed into this beautiful kind of milky pristine writing surface and it takes weeks and weeks to to get it like that so even before, um, I'll say that again. So even before a scribe began the process of writing, somebody had put in many many hours of labour to get that writing surface ready. And it's kind of similar with with medieval paper. It was made from boiled down rags that were set into presses. Um, again, very labour intensive. So then we have a scribe who would be given a text to copy. Um, perhaps another scribe might come and check the work. You might have a scribe who is called a rubricator, who would come along and write kind of coloured titles that would help the scribe, uh, help the readers, and, and also the scribes make their way through the text. Um, this could take years, especially if you're talking about a religious text, which is very lengthy. Um, you know, the working work of copying a Bible could take you know, well, depending on on how many scribes worked on it and for how many hours a day, but it definitely took years. Um, and then the programme of decoration um, was most often done, I mean, this is a big generalisation, but most often done by teams of people because it was just so labour intensive. Um, and I think that's another thing perhaps to bear in mind is that we have the, a notion of an artist of, we have a notion of a person who kind of works alone, um, in you know, in this kind of perhaps in a studio or a garret somewhere, and they're producing these great works that make them famous either in their own day or after they die. Um, but but manuscript illuminators were working in workshops or in scriptoria. They were working in groups. They were most often anon- anonymous. They were most often not well known. Um, and there's one manuscript that I talk about in the book called The Winchester Bible. Um, and the work of decorating that, it if, appears that there were some pauses in the in the programme of decoration for reasons that are kind of unclear. But it looks like it took around 15 years to complete. And I think that's just such a kind of salutary reminder to us, because today there is kind of no artifact that we fashion that would take so long that we would invest so many hours of labor into and it just makes you think afresh about the value of these objects i mean of course they have huge cultural value but if you were let's imagine you were you were writing an insurance you know, underwriting for for these objects. And you thought, well, what? how much would it cost to make a perfect replica of this if we started, you know, start to finish? And just the number of hours of skilled labor to create it is is mind-boggling to us today in our industrialized society.
1: Uh, the way you were describing the process, I was reminded of how, you know, through the progress of technology, even in the 20th century, there were a lot of beautiful handmade objects which are now produced on an industrial scale mechanically, which doesn't really have that much sentimental or let's say value. It doesn't have that artifact in there. It's just something that is produced mechanically, which in some ways is great, but we have lost that craft and that art. And, and you talked about, I actually wanted to ask about Winchester Bible, which you just uh, touched upon. Um so what is the significance of Winchester Bible? And and maybe before that, maybe you could tell us what is an illuminated manuscript?
0: Yes, I mean, an illuminated manuscript is just um, a decorated manuscript. Well, there are different kind of gradations um, that scholars have, but um, an illuminated manuscript is just a, a A richly decorated, I think that's probably the simplest explanation, a richly decorated manuscript. um, And you find that the borders of a text become places of great beauty and sometimes real playfulness. Um, I talk about several manuscripts in the book that have some really quite fun um, illustration at the borders of the text. Um, There's one particular manuscript called the Luttrell Psalter. So it's a copy of the Psalms, the biblical book of the Psalms. And um, I think perhaps today, the modern reader might imagine that a copy of the Psalms would have decoration that was somber and serious and filled with religious figures. And indeed, there are sections of the manuscript that contain that kind of illumination, but most of it is this gloriously anarchic, riotous, comic uh, imagery of people at the social margins, of, you know, kids, stupid sort of kids playing drinking games with each other and little comic scenes, and also these very surreal images of, of these odd monsters that you kind of can't really work out where they came from, what part of the artist's mind did these come from? Um, so illumination is, you know, it varies hugely across the the, the medieval period, Um But it's one of the reasons that manuscript pages are, you know, you you would never see that kind of thing in a modern edited text, right? And that's one of the reasons why the manuscript page is such a rich and wonderful artifact.
1: And and Winchester Bible, we still have the manuscript, but I guess some pages are torn out and they're kept in different uh, libraries and museums, right?
0: Yes. So there's a, there's one leaf from the Winchester Bible that made its way into the Morgan library in New York. Um, and then there are several places where, um, bits have been cut out and sometimes they've, it's been possible to reunite them with the original manuscript in Winchester. But yes, unfortunately, that is a story that is very common with manuscripts, um, that they are susceptible to destruction, either whole-scale destruction or kind of partial destruction. Um, and so I have a whole chapter about <laughs> about new disasters that, that nearly befell manuscripts.
1: And um, as I told you before the interview, I'm an enthusiast in the history of Middle Ages, and I'm always enraged when people refer to that as dark ages or talk about how the church was against the progress of science or knowledge or arts in general but again just leafing through your book there are dazzling beautiful pictures that just tell us a completely different story and one of the enduring misconceptions about the middle ages is that it was quite um i mean women were completely absent from the society which is not the case there are several uh, well-known women that you talk about, authors and also scribes. Um, what was their role? I mean, we don't know many famous, as you mentioned, famous female scribes, but can you tell us a little bit about the role of women in the Middle Ages and also specifically about those who were involved in the production of manuscripts, either as scribes or patrons?
0: Yeah, so I I include women in every chapter of the book, um, apart from the one on disasters. Um, <laughs> because I wanted to make clear that women were involved in the production of manuscripts at every level. Um, and um, so so there are so many different uh, wonderful stories that I could talk about, but I think it's important to say that from the earliest period, women have been involved. So there's this amazing letter written by the um, 8th century missionary Boniface, um, who was an English man who was a missionary in Germany converting the Germans to Christianity, and um, he wrote this letter to Abbess Eerberger, who was probably the abbess of, of Wimborne Abbey in Dorset, in um in the south of England. And he said to her, I beg that you will make a copy of the Petrine Epistles, so the, the letters of St. Peter, um, in gold. And he says, to impress upon the carnally minded to whom I teach. But what's wonderful about this is, well, for a start, it shows us that exactly as we've been talking about, you know, the manuscript, a manuscript is more than just a repository of text. You know, this gold appearance was clearly a physical manifestation of the sacral power of the text. And it was this beautiful artifact that Boniface intended to show to his flock as a way to bring them to Christianity. But it also shows that he he very clearly requests that it is Abbes Eerdberger herself who makes this. He wants her particular penwomanship. And I think this is an interesting point because I think sometimes we think about the Middle Ages a little bit through the prism of the 19th century. And I think that women tended to be more relegated from cultural life and intellectual life in the 19th century. And therefore, we assume that that pattern applies to the Middle Ages, which actually just isn't true. And I think the interesting thing to point out here is that monastic institutions gave women the possibility to hold tremendous power. You know, if you were an abbess, it was like it was kind of like being a CEO. Right, um, and so that you know, they were running huge groups of people. It was um, a, a wealthy institution. They would have been in charge of a of an important scriptorium, making manuscripts. They could be great patrons of arts. So, um, a lot of women that we know about who were involved in the production of books were attached to religious institutions. But that isn't the; those aren't the only women we have. Um, so, there are some. I mean, some fascinating authors who are not attached to religious institutions, and perhaps we can talk about some of those. Um, and of course, women, royal women, of course, had um, had you know had power in a way that um, other women didn't. So, one of the figures I talk about is this amazing woman called Queen Emma of Normandy, um, who was the aunt, the great aunt of. Hope I got that right. I think, I, I think that's right. Who's was the great aunt of William the Conqueror who invaded um England in 1066. So it was her relationship to William that legitimized the um the conquest. But uh she's she's this figure that kind of no one has really heard of today, despite how incredibly important she was in um sort of late. I'm not allowed to say Anglo Saxon, hang on. <laughs>
1: very problematic term these days i
0: know i know i know and it's so it's so easy it's so hard to say because i want to say late anglo-saxon which is like the best way to describe this so i'm just trying to think of a better way to quickly do it um let's say okay she's an incredibly important figure in 11th century politics um in this period just before the conquest um, she was the mother of two english kings um and also the mother She was the wife of two English kings and the mother of two English kings and also the mother of several claimants to the English throne. So she was a kind of, you know, a pivotal, pivotal figure. Um, And the reason I was very interested in her is that she commissioned this work called The Encomian and My Regini, which just means in praise of Queen Emma. And it is this kind of nakedly propagandistic poem about her life. And what I kind of adore about it is that it's almost as though she knew the way women's stories tend to get erased in in the passage of time and she just wanted to record a version of events about her life for posterity and through some glorious miracle that version of events survives and that means she's she's one of you know the very few Anglo she's one of the very few um, pre-conquest queens who whose life is sort of pretty well documented. Is that enough or do you want more? I can, that's an example of a patron and a...
1: It's, it's perfect. I actually have the, of course, the the, the famous uh, Marjorie Kemp because <laughs> I know we have, there are plenty of great stories in the book and uh, we, are, we are pressed for the time. So I guess we, we we will talk about some of them, of course. And I also have Julian of Norwich, two of my favorite authors. So let's talk about Marjorie Kemp. Uh I I always thought that she was the first female British author, but until reading your book, I realized there is also Julian of Norwich. But anyway, let's first talk about Marjorie Kemp. She was, I guess she was the first author who who had uh, the first author of an an autobiography. And maybe you can tell us, because the story of the discovery of the, the manuscript is fascinating, but what we did know about Margaret Kemp before the discovery of manuscript, but what is it in the manuscript that tells us more about her life? And how was the manuscript discovered? And then we can also talk about her life later on.
0: Okay, I... I- love to tell the story of the discovery of Marjorie Kemp's manuscript but I do want to jump in there and say it is a common misconception that Marjorie or Julian of Norwich are the first British female authors that's actually not true we have these amazing letters I mentioned earlier Saint Boniface the the um, missionary in Germany we have several letters written by missionary nuns to Boniface and they were English missionary nuns and within their um, letters we have poetry that they wrote and we also have these amazing Amazing text written by a nun called Hugo Burke. She wrote Two Saints Lives. Um, these are all from the early eighth century. So the history of female authorship in the, in the kind of British canon begins much earlier than poply, popularly understood. So to Marjorie, okay, so this is, this is just the best story. So in 1934, there is a family called the Butler-Bowden family. They are a Catholic family, and they are playing ping pong in their um, house in Derbyshire, which is called Southgate House, and one of the ping pong players treads on a ping pong ball. And so they go to a nearby cupboard, and they open the doors of the cupboard, and what falls out of the cupboard was what was described as an entirely undisciplined pile of bookish clutter. And Colonel Butlerbowden, I mean, we all have cupboards like that. Colonel Butlerbowden is enraged by this and he threatens to throw the whole lot on the bonfire the next day. And luckily, there is a house guest staying who says, Well, perhaps we should take a look and, and see if there's anything of note here. And one of the books has this rather unprepossessing cover. It has been eaten away, quote, presumably by a mouse. And inside is the lost book of Marjorie Kemp. Now, the book of Marjorie Kemp is the first piece of autobiographical writing in English. It's tremendously important. It's written by this woman, Marjorie Kemp, who is from East Anglia, the east of England. Um, uh, f- and she lived in the sort of first half of the 15th century. And I always say, the extraordinariness of Marjorie lies in her ordinariness, because she's from a kind of prosperous urban mercantile family, you know, what today we might think of as kind of middle class. And it's so rarely the voices of those kinds of people that come down to us from the Middle Ages, because it's more likely to be people from a kind of regal or an ecclesiastical elite who, who, have, who are literate and therefore who have the means to record their stories. And in this, Marjorie is no different because she was also illiterate and she had to um, dictate her text to an amanuensis, so that's a scribe who heard her words and wrote them down. In fact, she made four different attempts with three different amanuenses who kept getting a little exasperated with her. So um, (laughs) it tells you a bit about what Marjorie Kemp was like. But I do find that rather moving, this kind of real determination to get her story written down. I could talk about Marjorie Kemp all day, but in in a kind of nutshell, the story of Marjorie Kemp was that age 20 after the very difficult birth of her first child, we don't know whether that child lived or died. Um, she had an ap- an episode of what today probably we would call postpartum psychosis and um, she had visions of devils and she was kept she tried to kill herself, she was um, self-harming and her husband kept her chained up it's a horrible, horrible description. And in this moment, she has a, a vision of Jesus and she's restored to her wits. And she goes on and lives her life. And she works variously as a brewer and a horse mill operator. And she has 14 children. Again, we don't know how many of those lived or died. Um, And in kind of midlife, she decides to become what's called a vowess. So that's a person who takes religious vows without actually being attached to a religious institution. And she goes off on pilgrimage and she travels extensively to Jerusalem, to Rome, to Santiago de Compostela, all around England. Um, And so it's a it's a really incredible story. And it's told with such sort of vividness and honesty And the reason that the manuscript is so, so important is that until 1934, until that fateful ping pong game, the only known version of the text were these eight pages of heavily abbreviated printed extracts, which were printed in 1501 by a man called Winkender Word, who was the successor of William Caxton, England's first printer. And in that text, an editor has gone through Marjorie's manuscript version and taken out all the moments when Christ speaks to Marjorie. And so in the printed text, she becomes this kind of silent, submissive, weeping woman. And she's she's this kind of sort of a bit of a blank slate, just a sort of generic vision of female sanctity which is so at odds with the Marjorie that we know from the manuscript text who talks about sexual temptation. She talks about the lust she's had for her husband's body. She talks about food and she talks about her body. And it's just this very, very human portrait of a woman, an ordinary woman from the Middle Ages. And that is an invaluable, invaluable document.
1: Just as you mentioned, this is a great example of how a manuscript can show us, uh, can tell us about the agency of women and the way they exercise their 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 agency, their identity, and their power in the Middle Ages. And you also mentioned she was uh, she was also a pilgrim. And uh, did she write about her her, her 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 voyage in in the manuscript?
0: Yes, and it. it- It sounds like it was such an exhausting thing to do. I mean, it took months um, for her to reach her destination. But also it's kind of sometimes unintentionally comic in places because Marjorie was clearly not the easiest company let's say um and there's a moment when um the pilgrims that she's traveling with uh steal her money and abandon her (laughs) and another moment when they refuse to allow her to eat um eat at their dinner table because she's clearly being so annoying uh she had this tendency to to roar and wail and weep loudly um which was her being moved by devotion but um it, it rather disturbed the people around her.
1: <laughs> and, and, and she also uh, got into trouble with church authorities, if I'm not mistaken. I read some, I don't know if it was Marjorie Kemp, but I'm guessing it was Marjorie Kemp. used to wear white dress Will uh, also preach because women were not allowed to preach. Am I right?
0: yes you're completely right about it all of that um she she took to wearing white which was a sort of outward symbol of her of her devotion and the fact that she'd kind of taken these religious vows without actually being attached to an institution and just as a sort of side note, you know, the Middle Ages was a time that was very concerned about outward appearance. They, they had these things called sumptuary laws, which required people to wear clothing appropriate to their social class. So you were only allowed to wear fur and silk, for example, if you were an aristocrat. So... You know that just helps to explain how troubling it was to see a woman wearing what seemed to be, as it were, the kind of uniform of sanctity without actually being you know an official member of of an institution. Um, and yes, you know a, a little bit of context here is helpful. Um, in the early 15th century, um, the church had been doing battles with a, a heresy called the Wycliffeite heresy, or sometimes also called Lolody, um, where a man named John Wycliffe, who was um, a master of Balliol College in Oxford, had at the end of the 14th century uh, been advocating for whole-scale reform of the church. So he wanted a reformed ecclesiastical hier- hierarchy he had some rather unusual views about the Eucharist and about sacramental theology. But most importantly, and perhaps most significantly, he also wanted people to have access to the scriptures in the vernacular. And so around him, under him, a group of people began translating the Bible into the vernacular. And the church was very, very anxious about this and was really trying to kind of crack down on the this heresy. And so it outlawed all kinds of, it outlawed any kind of translation of the Bible into into the vernacular. Um, and it also outlawed preaching without a license. So for any person to preach without a license was bad enough. But the idea that a woman would wander around the country wearing white, and telling people how to live their lives was very, very troubling. And so, yeah, she is—you um, know—she's threatened with being burned alive in the street. She's subjected to various kind of ecclesiastical trials. Um, but I think we we also need to a little bit take what Marjorie says with a kind of a pinch of salt, because I think to some degree, her book is a little bit like a kind of application for sainthood. You know, she wants to present herself as, as having undergone these trials. And if we think about the kind of normal pattern of saints' lives from the Middle Ages, they generally describe some kind of martyrdom, right? So, the you know, the the, the female martyrs of the early Christian church, perhaps they they didn't want to marry someone and they were forced into a marriage and they refused to marry and they kept their true Christian faith. And then they end up getting, you know, boiled in a bath or something. It's usually some terrible sort of torture. And Marjorie doesn't really have any of those sort of forms of torture or martyrdom. And so I think some of her, some of her kind of torture or martyrdom is, is actually the marriage that she has and the scorn that she encounters from other people. So, as ever, we need to be critical about these texts in front of us, um, even if they are these, these precious witnesses to people's experiences in the past.
1: It was a very good uh, observation. I hadn't thought about that when you're talking about the, the manuscript, Marjorie life. Uh, There's also another female author that you talk about in the book, Julian of Nor- Nor- Norwich, who wrote this book, Revelations of Divine Love. Maybe you can tell us, about that book. What is that about? And she was an anchoress, which which I'm sure many people might not know about. So can you tell us about Julian of Norwich?
0: Julian of Norwich. Yes. So um, let's start with what an anchoress was. So, um, an anchorite or an anchoress, that's the female form, it comes from the Greek anahorane, meaning to retreat or retire. Um, and an anchorite or an anchoress is a person who permanently encloses themselves inside a cell to live a life of prayer and contemplation. Um, people were enclosed sometimes for, for decades, we have a record of one woman, for example, who was enclosed within this one room for 50 years. Um, the, the liturgy of the enclosure ritual, so the, the, the church service that was that was celebrated at the moment that an anchorite or an anchoress was enclosed, is, is in some ways indistinguishable from a funeral service, because there was this idea that once an anchorite or an anchoress became enclosed, they were kind of spiritually dead to the world. And they lived this life of incredible austere sensory deprivation. You know, very little—the only kind of very minimal, mm-hmm. highly regulated contact with the outside world. Um, no laughter, no touch. You know, frequent bouts of fasting. I mean, a, a very, very tough, and t- to the modern, to the modern mind, very strange life. Um, it's just to br- very briefly explain. Um, if we go all the way back to the the beginnings of the Christian church um, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, Christianity went from being this kind of um you know sect this this very marginal sect where devotees could die for their faith and it, that could be a sort of expression of their of their piety and their devotion and then once Christianity becomes a kind of the official religion of the of the Roman Empire, then um real strong devotees have to express their devotion in other ways, and they have to have other kind of forms of martyrdom. And that's where this practice of what we call asceticism comes from. This is why, you know, and monasticism comes out of this, but the the anchoritic tradition, which is in some ways a more extreme example of monasticism, comes out of that kind of context. I just think that's helpful to sort of explain a little bit about why people chose to do this. Anyway, so... Julian of Norwich is this, um, the work of the first work in English that we know was definitely written by a woman. And um, in um, 1373, when she was 30 years old, she was on her deathbed. She thought she was dying And um, she was sort of lingering on, it was several days of sort of this tormenting, awful experience. And finally a priest arrives and he brings a crucifix with him to offer her comfort at seemingly the moment of her death. And she then has this vision of um, the crucifix beginning, of blood starting to come from the crown of thorns on the crucifix and the whole room goes black. and the crucifix appears to be kind of illuminated, and she thinks that there are demons everywhere in the room. It's quite a frightening um, description of this sort of mystical experience. Anyway, after this moment, she recovers, and she lives for what we think is around another 40 years. And soon after this, Uh, extraordinary experience it seems that she decided to apply to become an anchoress to become enclosed within a cell and she it seems as though she composed so we should quickly say that there are two different versions of Julian's text. There's the catchily titled short text (laughs) and the equally catchily titled long text. (laughs) But the short text appears to have been composed as part of a kind of application for enclosure. So if you wanted to become an anchoress, you had to apply to your local bishop and sort of say, I would like to do this thing. And I am a very, I'm a person suitable to the contemplative life. And so that the short text appears to have been an account of this kind of mystical experience composed in the immediate aftermath of um, her deathbed experience. Then within her cell, she spent decades meditating on the meanings of these experiences. And she produced this text, the long text, which really represents her transition from kind of mystic to highly sophisticated theologian. I mean, it's a work of extraordinary rhetorical flourish and you know The fact that she's the author of the first work in English uh, that we know was written by a woman would make her important. But the text in itself is so wonderful that it really stands out as um, not only a very sophisticated piece of writing, but a very sophisticated piece of theology. And I think if I can, I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated text, but if I could sort of distill it down into a single idea... Um, there's one line from it that made its way into T.S. Eliot's uh, The Wasteland, um, which is, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And it's probably the most famous line of Julian's. But I think what's important about it is it encapsulates the kind of almost radical hopefulness of Julian's theology. I find it personally extraordinary that a woman who lived enclosed within a cell for decades and decades, who lived this life of extraordinary Mm -hmm. deprivation in many senses, never talks about the discomfort or the struggles of being within a cell. She just has this incredibly hopeful, loving idea about humanity and about God. Um, And for that, I think that's what makes the text kind of transcend all the centuries and transcend different cultural uh, contexts. And it just speaks to us today. I remember rereading it during lockdown and we were all in this kind of time of isolation. And there was just this wonderful optimism about it that I found so, so moving.
1: Uh, it was a perfect uh perfect thing you said, said about reading that No, i remember during the lockdown i watched that wonderful documentary into the great silence uh which is about i forgot the name of the monastery unfortunately it's it's a very long documentary and i just watch the daily lives of these people the monks and how they were worshiping meditating and it's quite amazing and then you know we are uh, we're in lockdown and we're, of course, I'm talking about from a privileged standpoint, I understand it could be tough on many people. Just personally speaking, it, it taught me a lot watching that documentary. And uh, that was a great observation just made about uh, Julian of Norwich. And there, I, I might get the name wrong. So you forgive me for that. There, there is this another, there is another story in your book. uh, uh, Lind, uh Lindy's foreign gospels, yes, uh, with some annotations at the end of the book. So, and um, can you talk about that one a little bit—the significance of the the, the annotations—and how was that manuscript made?
0: Yeah, and I think it's a lovely one to segue from from talking about Julian of Norwich and and this kind of meditative way of life, because um, many of the manuscripts that I talk about, particularly from the kind of later period, were often produced by groups of people in workshops. Um, but this manuscript was produced by one single figure, which is in itself a little bit unusual because most often the work of the scribe was separate from the work of the artist. But this manuscript was produced by a, a single brilliant scribe artist and um it's a copy of the gospels the four gospels and it was produced sometime between about 710 and 722 we think most likely by um bishop Aedfrith, who was the bishop of this very important monastic foundation called lindisfarne which was on a little island just off the coast of northumbria in the north of england um and there has been one suggestion from one scholar that that um, during the, the the Lent period in the run up to Easter, um, this time of kind of austerity and meditation and and contemplation, um, that Bishop Edfrith retreated to a little hermitage on an island off the main um, island where his monastery was, and he worked on this book. And I find that a very compelling suggestion. Um it's really, I think the way I like to think about it is, is an act of devotion in book form. It's the creation of every page was so beautifully time consuming. I mean, you have to, I really urge people to just Google it and go and have a look at some of the pages because um, here, in the sort of spaces created by the letters, Bishop Edfrith has fashioned these incredible interlacing patterns of writhing monsters and snakes and beasts, um, which he must have plotted kind of mathematically because the shit, the spaces are so awkward, and yet he makes them look like they perfectly fit together, like this love the lovely pieces of a kind of jigsaw puzzle. Um, And there's there's a lovely quotation from um, a Roman Christian called St. Cassiodorus, who um, writes about the work of the scribe as being... Um, like the scribe as being like a kind of soldier of Christ and and the quill and the ink as being like the weapons that the soldier of Christ uses to fight the devil. And he says every, I'll misquote this, I can't remember it precisely, but he says, every mark made by the scribe is a wound on the back of the devil. And this is really wonderful because the the Lindisfarne Gospels particularly has some of these pages that have these Beautiful little tiny red dots that have been added over the whole page, and it gives the page this kind of like shimmering, iridescent feel. But, and of course, we don't know whether Bishop Eadfrith knew this work by Cassiodorus, but I like to imagine that he saw all of those little red dots as being like pinpricks on the back of the devil. And of course, let's not forget he was writing on parchment. You know, he was writing on this fleshy medium. And and it's not only our modern sensibilities interjecting to to make us think that, you know, that writing on animal skin is kind of weird and, and like fleshy and strange. There are a lot of medieval texts from both the early and late medieval period that show an awareness of this kind of the fleshiness, the embodiedness of this act of writing and, and textual creation.
1: And earlier you mentioned that some of these scribes, we don't know many of them, but some of them did write their own words into the manuscript because they knew they might might be forgotten. Uh, I'm sure you've come across a lot. You do talk about some of them in your book. Uh, one of them is Myriad of France. So can, can you talk about the significance of these kind of meta-commentaries, if I can use the term?
0: Yeah, so I, I would say that annotation you know, is a very catch term to describe all kinds of different sort of marks and um, made by scribes and, and annotators in, in the margins of books. I mean, we could start with the Lindisfarne Gospels um, in about so that the manuscript itself was made in the early decades of the 8th century. And then in about 970, um, there was an annotator called Aldred who went through the Lindisfarne Gospels, which was written out in Latin, and he wrote um, what are called interlinear glosses. So that's little lines of text in between the lines of the Latin, in which he translated the Latin into Old English, which was the language spoken by um people in england at the time and that makes this that makes it the earliest vernacular translation of or one of the earliest trans vernacular translations we have of of the bible um albeit in partial form i mean we have this kind of po- popular misconception that the bible wasn't translated into english until you know say the 16th century but that's not true it was going on much much earlier than that um so that's a very particular type of annotation. And then he also writes these lovely notes at the end. He's actually the one that gives us the information that that the, the book itself was made by Bishop Eerdfrith. Um, and he also mentions the name of the, the binder, um, who is a, an anchorite called Bilfrith. Um, and so he he's actually a very important um, source of evidence about the creation of that book. Um, But there are so many different types of annotation. I mean, there's this wonderful figure that I talk about at the beginning of the book called the Tremulous Hand of Worcester. And the Tremulous Hand uh, is, we don't know whether it was a man or a woman, but an annotator who wrote this very kind of distinctive, shaky, left-leaning handwriting. And they annotated a whole load of manuscripts in Old English, um, in between about 1210 and 1240. Um, so just a bit of very brief context here for your listeners. Um, Old English was the version of English that was spoken in England before the Norman conquest of 1066. So when the Norman conquest came, with the, the French conquerors brought with them lots of French words, which entered the English language. But at, at around that time... Old English, as we call it, was losing its grammatical complexity. So um, modern English is an uninflected language. We don't have um, nominative, genitive, accusative, um, as we do in modern German or in Latin. But in Old English, we did. And that complexity was was changing and dying out. So the combination of French words plus grammatical change meant that by about 1210, 1240, when this annotator was annotating all of these books, the language was becoming kind of hard to understand because his vernacular language his or her vernacular language had changed quite a lot and we think that he or she was gathering words possibly to make a glossary and there's something kind of wonderful about this you know he or she was intent on ferreting around in the material remains of the past and and kind of decoding its remnants and and that really speaks to me that feels like kind of what I do um, and what many historians do. Um, yeah, there are so many different types of annotators. I could, I could talk about them for, for at least three hours.
1: <laughs> and one of the most fascinating one is the nun in the Bavarian monastery of, again, I'm not sure about the pronunciation, Heidenheim, if I'm not mistaken, who wrote a code which was uh, kind of decoded several uh, years ago, sorry, several years uh, later. So can you talk about that story as well?
0: Yes, so um, this nun was called Hügeberg. Um, She was one of the missionary nuns associated with Boniface, who I mentioned before, who was this important um, missionary to Germany. And in the early eighth century, um, she wrote these two saints' lives. Um, And in the kind of space between these two texts, um, she wrote this little code. And in the preface to one of the texts, uh, we know from reading that preface that the text was authored by a woman because the author describes themselves as an indigna Saxonica, so a lowly Saxon woman. And so for centuries and centuries and centuries, people knew that these works were written by a female author, but they never knew her name until the 1930s. So really very, very recent in you know in the spectrum of the age of this text. Um, in the 1930s, a scholar was able to decode um, this the, these words um, or letters. Really, they were sequences of letters, and you know it revealed that she had put her own name into. She says, "You know, I Hugerberg uh, wrote and ordered this." Um, now, what I think is quite interesting about that is it suggests to me that she understood something of the way women's names very often get erased from history, and particularly female authors' names. And it's important to say that the Middle Ages understood authorship very differently from us. You know, they didn't feel... Today, we basically feel that there's a kind of commercial value that accrues around the name of an author, um, which is, you know, an inheritance of commercial book production, which happens at the end of the Middle Ages. Um, But in the early medieval period, you know, an author was was not meant to announce themselves. So that's one reason why authors' names don't get recorded. But it is undoubtedly true that the names of female authors are much less likely to be recorded. And I think there's something quite interesting about the way she stitched this little code into the space between these two texts, as though she was kind of aware of how unlikely it was for her name to survive. Um, and we also find this with uh, the Anglo-Norman poet Marie de France, who announces herself. She says, you know, I, my name is Marie and I'm from France. But she writes this within the verse. So she knows that in order to make the verse scan, to make the poetry work, the scribes have to copy her name. And that I think is quite interesting because, again, it, it feels like a very strategic act. A way of ensuring her own memorialization.
1: That was very smart of her to do so. That's what we know for I guess. Many
0: more female authors have done the same.
1: Yeah, yeah. We'll we get to know more of them. And again, uh, we talk about the fact that um, authors didn't, many authors didn't actually write their own books. It was a work of scribes. Uh, do we know anything about how the dynamic between them worked? I guess, we, you know, in a way, we still have. That, that kind of a dynamic or sometimes even a tension between an author and an editor or, or a publicist, for example, and a publisher, how they want to kind of market the book, but how, how the author wants to actually write the book. Do we know anything about this dynamic between the two?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's a very interesting thing that, when you tell people today, when you talk about medieval manuscripts today, people most often think that when you're talking about literary manuscripts, that they were all in the hands of the author. And actually what we call holographs, so manuscripts written in the hands of the author themselves, are incredibly rare. Um, I mean, if you take, for example, Geoffrey Chaucer, he died in about 1400. And it seems that no manuscripts, I mean, maybe one or two but of the, of the, for example, the Canterbury Tales, his most famous work of the around 98 copies that survive of that, many, of that text, um, it seems that almost none of them were produced within his own lifetime, let alone in his own hand. So in a very literal sense, Geoffrey Chaucer is the product of 15th century scribes and the way that they construct him. Um, and I think that's a really, really interesting thing that um, scribes have a lot of power and scribes do really interesting things. And that's why I'm very interested in what they do. And I think that modern texts that try to kind of, you know, clean up what scribes do um, kind of miss some of the magic of the manuscript text.
1: Uh, And you have this fascinating chapter in your book, Near Disasters. Uh... Um, my favorite story even with the ironic name is the Ashburnham House Fire. <laughs> Can you talk about that uh, for our listeners?
0: Yes. so in the Elizabethan period there was a man called Robert Cotton and he um, made uh, gathered an extraordinary collection of manuscripts. Um, He had two original copies of the Magna Carta. Um, He had the largest collection of pre-conquest manuscripts ever put together. He had the state papers of of Henry VIII and of Elizabeth I. Um, He had a series of literary masterpieces that survived in only one manuscript, like Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Beowulf. Um, And by the 18th century, his grandson had left the collection to the British nation, And it was being stored in a a place called Essex House on the Strand in London, right by the River Thames. And um, the government got into a dispute with the landlord because they said that the house was not sufficiently safe from fire. And so they decided to move the collection to the ominously named Ash Burnham House. And in on the twenty third of October, seventeen thirty one, a fire broke out on the on the apartments in the apartments on the floor below the library, um, and I could go on all night about exactly what happened um, on that fateful night. But um, a series of mistakes were made clearly, but the librarians really did their best to to get the manuscripts out. Um, some whole bookshelves, they were able to get out and get down the stairs, but it was a long, thin room. It had. Um, it was very difficult to manoeuvre to the middle of the night. They're using candles to light their way, you know, which must have been terrifying in the fire. Um, the fire engines, such as they were in the 18th century, we don't know how effective those were, were very slow to arrive. So a series of mistakes were made. Um, And at a certain point, they just had to start breaking open the locked doors of the bookshelves, and they started to throw manuscripts out the window uh, because the fire had travelled up the backs of the bookshelves, also called the presses, and it had started to singe the, the folios, the pages of many of the books. And one of the books that has singed edges where the fire had begun to destroy it was none other than the Beowulf manuscript. Mm -hmm. Now Beowulf is of course um, this great gem of pre-conquest literature, the first great epic in the English language, um, and a a truly incredible work of literature. But also old English poetry, so the poetry of the pre-conquest period in England, about 70 percent of it survives in four physical books. So if one of those books had been lost, we would have lost such an enormous proportion of the surviving poetry of this early medieval period. And that's because in 1731, there was no complete transcription or no printed edition of the poem. The first printed edition didn't appear until 1815. And so if those flames had traveled any further, it would have been a terrible loss uh, for English literature and English history.
1: And um, I knew about Beowulf being partially burnt, but I never bought. i never bothered to check uh, the picture of the manuscript until after I read the book, and I googled the picture. And, we, and I and I do urge our listeners to just Google and see the manuscript. Uh, it's quite something else. With when you know the story behind uh, behind how 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 this uh, gem of literature was saved.
0: Yeah, I I really want to kind of urge your listeners. It's one of the amazing things about writing about manuscripts today is that manuscripts have traditionally been these incredibly inaccessible things, you know, they're, they're, they're physically very inaccessible, because, you know, if you want to go and look at them, you you have to sort of have a very valid scholarly research reason and you have to apply to the different libraries. Um, And, you know, if you ever see them in like a gallery setting, you see like one opening of a page, which, or two pages, which is a bit like deciding to look at an old master painting and say, okay, I'm just going to look at this little credit card sized area in the bottom left-hand corner. And, but the amazing thing about writing and thinking about manuscripts today is that most of the really big ones are digitized now. And so, pretty much every manuscript I wrote about in the book is available. If you go onto the British Library's website, because most of these manuscripts are from the British Library, and you just Google it, you can find wonderful images of these incredible artifacts. And it doesn't matter if you can't read the script and you can't understand the language. I think just looking at a manuscript page, I'm a real advocate for this, just looking at a manuscript page gives you a sense of their incredible diversity and richness. And it reminds you that modern printed books are just boring, boring things by comparison.
1: <laughs> it's actually one of my favorite pastimes every now and then just go to British Library website and start checking the manuscripts. And it's interesting uh, what, you, what you just said. It was, uh, uh, I myself was talking to another author last week and there is a whole a- academic expertise of uh, uh, studying uh, manuscripts, the, the illustrations of manuscripts. And we were talking about some Ottoman manuscripts in the 15th century and I was amazed uh, because the manuscript tells me something quite different from that kind of established history that I've read um, in the books about most of this manuscript are from the Islamic period and, and the just the visual audacity of the the presentation of a male or female bodies tells you a completely different story about um, about the literature and culture of the people at the time and um, let me ask you one final question uh, Maybe it's a sad question, which is the decline of manuscripts. When 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 did this? I know printing press was a great invention, but when did this uh, the act of creating manuscripts sort of declined? And uh, maybe the dissolution of monasteries also played a role in there.
0: Yeah. So one of the last manuscripts, I mean, in historical terms, the the last the latest manuscripts that I talk about is a manuscript produced for Henry the Eighth. Um, and produced in about 1540. So at that point, um, printing had been around for a long time in Europe. Um, and William Caxton, England's first printer, had come um, to England in the 1470s and set up his printing press then. So it had been really some time that that um, printed books had been around. But much like today, we use um, e-readers and and traditional books in different ways and for different things. You know, the manuscript and the printed text went on being used in tandem for a long time. Manuscripts obviously have a kind of malleability and flexibility that printed texts don't have, um, and you can kind of dash them off uh, more quickly and probably more cheaply than you could ordering a big print run of books. Um But yeah, I talk in the final kind of epilogue of the book is about the dissolution of the monasteries, which if your listeners don't know, but in the 1530s, there was this um, big change in religious practice that was brought about by Henry VIII, um, where he dissolved monastic institutions in England. And the effect of this was to... Um, dispersed their libraries, and many, many manuscripts were destroyed in that period. Um, and so yes, that was a <laughs> that was a bad moment. but I think you know the to some degree, the manuscript you know as as a, a kind of readily available, easy technology. Was always kind of doomed to die after the invention of printing, um, but it did go on having a certain role in a certain place within society after printing. Um, and you know, we we still have some sense of that today. You know, if you write a handwritten note to somebody, that feels much more precious and important than writing an email. And you know, if you think about, for example, if you get like a certificate for something. Very often, you know, it will appear to be written in kind of ca- a calligraphic hand. You know, we still have this sense that handwriting is invested with this kind of power that that the printed word just doesn't have.
1: Uh, I still have like this friend uh, who's kind of our two friend, you know, always writes letters. I get them like every once a year, but that's something quite different from an email that you just mentioned.
0: Yeah, of course. <laughs>
1: Uh, Dr. Mary Wesley, thank you very much for your time. It was a fascinating conversation. And I do encourage our listeners to go and read the book. There are lots and lots of beautiful pictures and wonderful stories in this book. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for having me.